Hi, it's Malcolm, and I'm joined by my colleague Wayne, and today we're going to be talking about buy-to-let mortgages. Um, I mean, buy-to-let has always been there, hasn't it, Wayne? But I remember it's really taking off in the in the mid mid nineties, just as I was yeah. getting started. I yeah. just seem to remember that's when we started well, getting going. Obviously, as an old fogey, um, I remember when it wasn't that common. To be fair, um, but you're right. After sort of the deregulation of the building societies and the banks starting to um, become freer to, to lend in more areas. As you say, it became it became much more popular, and banks began to sort of compete against each other. So it, it certainly grew, started to really take off in in the nineties, as you say. So I, I suppose if you went back further than that, this would have been the domain of the well professional landlord that would do this for a living. Yeah, and and the the, the more sort of commercial lending type banks would would maybe finance it, um, but then. As as the as the market freed up a little bit, you started to get the sort. Of, I won't call them amateur landlords because I'm sure that they are, you know. But landlords who didn't see this as their only living, as opposed to previously where you would have had professional landlords and that was their that was their business and they would raise the funds on a commercial basis. And then, do you think this is to do with people losing faith in things like pensions and other investments, whereas property tends to be something that they, they know and they understand? I think there's definitely an element of that. Um, as you said, the, the, the pension industry, there was a, a lot of bad press about pensions, um, into, and, and whereas the, historically, you know, your, your employee would often contribute a large chunk of your pension contributions, that started to, to, to disappear, mm-hmm. um, and people were having to fund their own, make their own arrangements, and I think a lot of people sort of looked at it and thought, hang on a minute, Property prices generally go up over time. You know, the, yes, there are always peaks and troughs, but the general curve is upwards. And I would rather invest my money in that than maybe a pension fund. Yeah, and I suppose some of these people that were getting into this in the nineties and early two thousands might have been uh, people that have benefited from seeing properties that they already own go up in value. Exactly. You know, especially if you if you've lived through that period where you've seen maybe a couple of property price booms. All of a sudden, the value in your house has, you know, gone up by fifty percent, sixty percent, sometimes doubled, whatever. Um, then you might think, well, I want to replicate that, and, and that's then going to be a good investment for my future. So typically, um, lenders will want you to put down a higher deposit um, for a buy set than they would do for a, a residential. I think the reason behind that really is that um, if you fell into some financial difficulties and you had to decide between paying the mortgage on your own residential property and you happen to lose your tenant at the same time, it's all gone completely wrong for you, and you've got this buy-to-let, you probably prioritise paying your own mortgage, so the banks want to minimise their risk by um, looking for a higher deposit to come down now. The amount of deposit that needs to go down ebbs and flows depending on what's happening with the market, but yeah. typically, way. Yeah, t- typically, I would say you would all, you'd, you'd typically be safe with a 25% deposit. As you say, there have been times when lenders will do it with a 20% deposit. When the market was booming, we even saw sort of 15% deposits. Um, I think if you work to a 25% deposit, you will always, you know, whatever the market's doing, probably probably be in with a good shell. Okay. Um, now, we often have um, first-time landlords come to us, that probably homeowners, um, looking to, to um, supplement their income or look for an investment for the future by building a property portfolio. How do people do that? So obviously it starts with one property. Yeah, exactly. And first, first of all, a lot of the people who have seen that property growth in, in the value of their own home, they've got latent equity in their own home. 
So often people will look to release some capital from their own home in order to fund the deposit of their next purchase. Um, I've done that on, off- on offset mortgage before, so, so the kind of you can draw that money down as and when you need it. Exactly, yeah. So, so th- th- that's often a starting point for people looking to get onto the onto the um, landlord um, market for, for the first time. And then, so they've released this money out of their own residential property. Yeah. They could maybe perhaps go and, and buy one for cash, or they could spread that, spread it, and buy two or three. I, the, the, the key to success is always going to be what, what sort of return are you going to get on your capital. So, for example, it might be worth using that lump sum, as you, as you say, to, to buy maybe two or three houses, which might not be the most valuable houses, but they might be in very good rental areas, you know, where, for example, near to a university where students often rent. Um, and that actually then gives you a very good return on the, on the capital investment that you've made. So you mentioned that universities, so... Um so these would be house of multiple occupation, HMOs, as known in the industry. Mm. So they would normally um, attract a, a higher yield, a higher high monthly rental amount? Yeah, the, obviously with, with the uh, HMOs, th- there are more regulations come from it because obviously they, they, they have to be registered with the local authority and there are, there are more rules and regulations and lenders do therefore tend to treat them as a slightly different category. But certainly... The, the reward, because if you think if you've got a house with say four bedrooms in it and four students with a room each, each paying their rent, mm-hmm. often that would generate more than if you just let that to, for example, a single family who were who were letting who, who were renting the whole house sort of thing. Okay, got it. So um, through the two thousands, um, bites that really. Um, became very popular lots of people dinner party landlords this would be um, people talking about their, their the values of their investments going up and the, the yields um, etc and but the number of first-time buyers um, was going down and that's not a great thing I think we all um, we all understand that getting people younger people for the first time uh, buy a property ladder is is a good thing good thing for the overall economy and um, so the government um, about 2015 uh, decided um, try and do a bit of social engineering to, to change this to make it uh, less advantageous for landlords to carry on buying. So how did they go about doing that, Wayne? Well, basically, they, they changed the tax situation. So um, over a, a, a period of uh, four or five years from sort of 2015 onwards, um, 2015, 2016, whichever, yeah. but, but they, they phased in um, a cha- series of tax changes as to the way that the rental income was taxed. Um, so prior to that, you could offset all of your mortgage interest against yeah. your tax bill. So, um, so if you've got your um, your rent coming in, you could knock off your uh, mortgage interest plus other sort of fees associated yeah, with management agent fees, things like that. And your, your tax liability would be in, in some cases zero or next to zero. Yeah, you would you would pay the you would pay tax on the on your net profit after you deducted. All the expenses. The change that was phased in is that basically, in very general terms, and again, you, we would always recommend that you take specialist tax advice before you before you, you uh, launch into this. But in very general terms, now you pay tax on the gross rent. Yeah, okay, so I did see your income, and then your tax yeah. is calculated. You, there's a there's a specific allowance for landlords. It's the same allowance basically for everybody. So irrespective of what rate of tax you pay you pay on the gross rent and you get the same allowance. And because it was phased in, it almost 
came as a bit of a surprise to some of these landlords. Yeah, exactly. I, I think a few people sort of it, it came in by stealth almost, and, and they didn't realise until the, at the end of it when they then start getting a quite a big tax bill at the end of the year on it. And the other thing was um, they introduced a stamp duty surcharge. Uh, tell us a bit about that. Well, basically, if you, in very simple terms, if you if you uh, are buying a property and you start the transaction, let's say owning one property, and you end the transaction owning two properties, then you would pay an extra 3% stamp duty over and above any regular stamp duty payment that, that would be made, and that would be 3% on the whole price of the property. So if you took a, a £100,000 property where typically no stamp duty would be payable, yeah. you'd then pay £3,000 like Correct. you were um, expecting. Correct. Um, but it really didn't put landlords off too too much because um, uh, you, you'll still history suggests that that you'll, you'll, that property will go in value more than three thousand pounds if you hold on to it. Exactly, if if you keep it long enough, and also it's it's a cost that landlords would factor into when they calculate what what rent they're going to charge. Now, obviously, there's different things to factor into that, but certainly it, it was it's an extra cost that they would factor in as to as to what the likely rent would need to be. And some landlords were put off by uh, by that surcharge, and they continue to be so. And actually, um, the, the proportion of first-time buyers has increased. So it was a bit of social engineering that that possibly did work in the favour of first-time buyers. Yeah. Um, another question that we get asked regularly, and it's really one for a, a, um, a property specialist tax advisor, is: Should a client start up a, a limited company? What kind of advice do you give to customers who are thinking about doing it that way? It's something that that. That crops up quite regularly now for us. It is, and and the, the nub does come down to the taxation angle, which, as you say, you, you need to speak to a specialist, um, and because it will be different for every single person, depending on, for example, if you're a high-rate taxpayer already, or will the rent push you into being a high-rate taxpayer? I think the, the, the key considerations, the key pros and cons, if you like, first of all, from a lending perspective, um, it's fair to say that, that fewer lenders actively participate in the, in the limited company um, arena. And, and we should say, by the way, it needs to be what's known as a specialist purpose vehicle. A That's right. Purpose vehicle. So that means that the, the limited company that you, that you start up can only be doing property. Correct. So if, you're, if, you're a, if you've already got your plumbing company and you're a limited company as a plumber, you can't just buy the, the properties within your plumbing company, you have to set up a separate company and, and ring fence it, exactly. Um, so it needs to be a, you know, a, a specific um, company. It, um, fewer lenders lend in that space, so, so you'll have less choice. And generally speaking, um, because the, the, the lenders see that as potentially higher risk to them, some of the reasons that you said before, you're less likely to worry about keeping up your payments if you don't even own that property, it's your company that owns it. So lenders will see that as, a, as an extra risk. So generally, the rates that they would charge would be higher to the limited company than it would be if you were just buying it as me, Joe Bloggs, individual. Mm -hmm. But in a lot of cases, all of those disadvantages can be outweighed by the fact that you can take your income, uh, possibly as dividend income from your company, and that's taxed differently. Now, as I say, it's different for everybody. You need the specialist advice, but for a lot of people, that can then prove more, much more beneficial than the disadvantages of paying slightly higher rates or having slightly less choice of, of lender. I think what we found was um, customers that kind of already own properties in their own personal name 
and reacted by leaving those properties in the personal name, but the subsequent purchases tended to be through their limited companies. That's right, because your limited company is a separate legal entity. And so often people would leave the, the companies, sorry, the properties that they already owned in their individual name because they'd effectively have to sell it to their limited company, which would generate all the additional stamp duty charges and so on. So, uh, and, and because it is a purchase, it's, it, it's my company, but it, that's separate. So, as you, right, as you rightly say, a lot of people thought, right, well, we'll, we'll stick with what we've got, we won't change that, but then if we build a portfolio up any further, we'll do that through the company. Good. So when uh, a landlord is looking to, to buy additional properties, do they tend to be buying them for um, capital growth or do they tend to be doing it for, um, for, for generate extra income? I think, I think often it's a combination of both and, and obviously different landlords will have different priorities. Um, you know, if you see, for example, you, you do, I, I, I've spoken to people now that I see in building up a bigger portfolio and that becoming it might not be their only source of income now, but they might see that as becoming their primary source of income. So that might be like a tradesperson who thinks, yeah. I'm on the tools now, but when I get into my 50s and 60s, yeah. I don't want to necessarily be doing that. Correct, and, and, and you know, um, so that's their priority. Other people see it um, that, okay, I'm, I'm in a good job, you know, I'm, I'm already earning good money, I want to make take advantage of the money that I'm earning now. I don't, as long as the, the property pays for itself. I don't really need that income, but I like the idea that in 15, 20, 25 years, when I come to retire, that I'm then going to have a nice portfolio of properties that I can then sell, generate, you know, and, and generate the capital and, and have that available as my pseudo pension fund. So people that want to um, generate some instant income yeah. might do an interest-only mortgage? Yeah, that is, that is a big difference between, say, the buy-to-let market and the residential market, where interest-only mortgages are, are much more commonplace. Um, and obviously, if you're only paying interest on your loan um, and you're collecting the rent, the gap between what you, your revenue coming in and your outgoings going out is much bigger. It gives you more income. Okay. And, and then perhaps if you're looking at... Um, something more for the future, then some of those customers tend to go on repayment by to let more do. Exactly, because they're looking at it thinking, well, if I can get this loan paid off, and it will be, it will be paying itself off. Mm. Um, by the rent from that's coming in. The rent that comes in is paying off the mortgage for me, and I'm not really bothered about the, any extra income that it generates now, but in, in you know, as I say, in 20 years' time, 25 years' time, if I've then paid that mortgage, if I sell that house, I get the full value of that house, to do with what I wish at that point. We get um, a surprising number of inquiries from first-time buyer, first-time landlords, mm. don't we? Which is might, might surprise some people. It's like, why would you buy a property for investment before you bought a, a home for yourself to live in? But it does come up all the time. It does. Um, and I guess there are some, you know, possibly some occupations, maybe if you're in the armed forces and you're moving around, but you like the idea of buying, you know, buying somewhere for, for your future. Mm. Um, so, it does, so it does happen. From a lender perspective, clearly lenders typically want to see some sort of experience that you've been used to paying a mortgage. So whilst I'm not saying you can't do it because there are lenders that will do it, again, it comes down to choice and, and not every lender will do that because they would see a first-time buyer slash first-time landlord as a bigger risk. Yeah, the reason that they would say it potentially is a bigger risk is that... Um, 
it, it could be a way that a customer could inf um, take out a bigger mortgage um, because it's it's not so much based on how much you're earning, how much you can write, it's more like the rental income that's coming in. Does the rental income that's coming in exceed the mortgage payment by a, a set percentage, like 125, 145%? And that the lenders are, are nervous about these backdoor residential ones. So, for example, if you're buying in a different area, they get a bit more relaxed sometimes. So if you live yeah. in London, but you're buying a property in Leeds, yeah. then that, that might they, be... They don't think that you're going to live there. Yeah, Whereas right. if, you, you know, if you're buying one two doors down from your mum's house sort of thing and you're going to carry on living at your mum's house and let that one they're probably going to be a bit more sceptical and it's quite a good point people do stay at home for longer don't they yeah. they've got a nice comfortable life at home and getting all their, uh, the teas cooked and the washing yeah. done you know but they've got some money in the bank to invest mm. uh, and, and they've had their families have good experience with properties then that's how the first time buyer first time landlord market can uh, develop and um, what about the maximum number of, of properties so we've, we've bought what we've bought so we've maybe started the STV limited company up uh, the different lenders have uh, different rules about how many bags that you can have yeah very much so um, the, and it varies quite widely you know um, got customers who've got 15 20 properties and um, then, but but not all with the same lender because some of those lenders will only, for example, lend on maybe two or three properties, some four or five. But it varies from lender to lender, and that's where your advisor comes in because obviously there's no point in us trying to. Uh, we'll look at your your whole portfolio. We'll look at the total value. We'll look at the, the total loan to loan to value right across the range because the larger your portfolio gets, lenders start to look at that. Um, you know, they might want to see that. Um, they might be a bit more wary about lending higher loans to value if you've got everything at a higher loan to value mm -hmm. already, if that makes sense. So that's where your advisor comes in. Is you know we, we would do that research for you and, and make sure that that the lender that, that is being recommended is, is one that is actually open to, to you, particularly in your portfolio. Yeah, and that's just down to that, that individual lender's sort of risk profile. Correct. So what about buying properties and, and refurbishing them and, and then releasing capital then to, to continue to build your portfolio? Again, often happens. Um, there, there are a few sort of general things. A lot of lenders are a bit wary of remortgaging a property that you've just bought at a low value and remortgaging that straight away at a higher value, sometimes they're a little bit wary of that, and so very often it would need to be a, a sort of a six-month gap between you buying it and, and then refinancing it. Um, but even then, not every not every lender does that. And again, that's that, that you know that it, it really depends on the circumstances. But it's certainly a, a possibility. So if you took some before and after pictures and kept your receipts and invoices and things, that might go in your favour. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then, um, just finally on, on, on regulation, um, for some reason, uh, buy-to-set mortgage have always fallen outside of the normal mortgage regulations. Here at UK Moneyman, we treat every customer the same, so that the service is seamless, whether you come into us for a residential um, or a buy-to-let mortgage, we're going to end up making a, a recommendation. But there are a couple of uh, exceptions where buy-to-let can become regulated, and that's consumer buy-to-let, and then when you're renting to family. Yeah. As you say, consumer buy-to-let is typically where you are letting a property that you have previously lived in, and and it, it became almost like the accidental landlord who, for whatever you know, b b back in the day, who maybe um, if, if the property market had gone against, he wanted to move, buy a bigger house to live in. Not many people identify a house on on right move that they want to buy, and yeah. they haven't really thought about selling their house yet. Yeah, so exactly. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's like you know, they might be in good good jobs, 
plenty of savings, have got a deposit to buy the next house without necessarily having to sell their existing one. And then the, the residential mortgage that we'd arrange for is a, is a letter buy. So you've heard of buy to let, this is, this is the letter buy. You don't do as much of that now because of the, um, the stamp duty surcharge. It, yeah. it kind of puts some people, yeah. uh, some people off. And regulated uh, is, is where you, you're renting to a, a, a son or a daughter or a family. Exactly, and, and I think people often think, well, if you know, I'll buy it just to let it to my son, or you know, and it'll be all nice and informal. Well, unfortunately, no, it won't be. And and far fewer lenders will lend in that scenario where where it's a regulated buy to let because. I guess what they're looking at is, you know, if, if you're letting in, sorry, if you're letting little Johnny live in in, um, in your house, then and he's going to pay the rent. And let's say little Johnny then doesn't pay you the rent, you're not going to kick him out, are you? Yeah. <laughs> you uh, it's your son or your daughter. So um, the lenders see that as an extra risk. Those those loans are probably going to be more prone to, to potential for arrears or ultimately maybe possession. And so generally speaking, very difficult to to mortgage. So, big old subject, uh, buy to let. Uh, it's been with us for, for a long time and it, it's here to stay. And obviously, we'll be delighted to help you with any questions that you've got on buy to let mortgages.